Hey, Chris Garlock here. We're taking a few weeks off to catch up with family now that we're able to travel, so this week's show is one from the Labor History Today archives. The twin anniversaries this last week of the Tulsa Race Massacre a century ago and the murder of George Floyd just a year ago renewed much-needed attention to how people of color are policed in this country. Our June 14, 2020 show featured a live report from Black Lives Matter protests in Washington, D.C., and we also examined the history of black police in America, as well as race and rebellion. I think you'll find it's still timely. We're sick and tired of being left out. We're sick and tired of not being heard. And we're sick and tired of our communities where we live and work are not being heard. That's Ken Rigmaiden, president of the Painters Union. Our Cool Things at the Meany Archives team caught up with him last Monday when the painters joined the Black Lives Matters protests in downtown Washington, D.C. I'll be frank with you. I'm, I'm watched police behavior and reform and policies over time. It's been sort of uh, surprising and shocking that many of the police departments have sort of reverted to tactics, you know, that that mirrored or that represented the, how police operated before African-American mayors and before African-Americans became police chiefs and police commissioners. That's W. Marvin Delaney, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Texas, Arlington, and the author of Black Police in America. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon spoke with Professor Delaney this week about the history of black police in America. Just the fact that they've devoted so much space to trying to explain how we got here, I think sort of validates the idea that you really need to understand the past to understand what's happening in the present. That's all coming up in this week's Labor History Today, along with a song from the R.J. Phillips Band recorded three years ago for the families who have lost loved ones as a result of police brutality. And on Labor History in Two, we hear about a minor shot dead trying to organize. Ken Rigmaiden is the president of the Painters Union. Last Monday, Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak from the Cool Things from the Mini Archives team caught up with President Rigmaiden when painters joined the Black Lives Matters demonstration. He touched on the effort to organize the rally itself, the importance of generating broader solidarity between the labor movement and Black Lives Matter, and some personal history about his own upbringing in California and an incident when he was pulled over by police. Ben and Allen interviewed President Rigmaiden right on Black Lives Matter Plaza, a block from the White House, with the protests going on in the background. Ben started off by asking why the painters had decided to join the Black Lives Matter's protests. We call it this rally today because we feel that organized labor, while not having to be a leader here, has to be a part of the success. Labor has to be a part of this program. After all, we're an organization, whether you're a painter, whether you're an electrician, whether you're a government worker, where we are the community. We're a part of the community. And when the community hurts, we hurt because our members are part of the community. That's why we feel we have to be involved in this, not to necessarily be a leader, but to do our part. 
And could you talk about what your members are doing right here in front of the AFL-CIO building down at uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza? Yeah. We're here because we're sick and tired. We're sick and tired of being left out. We're sick and tired of not being heard. And we're sick and tired of our communities where we live and work are not being heard. It's the only reason we're here. We realize that in this space, this is something new. I'm an old timer. I can go back to the late 60s, early 70s, early 80s where when something happened, if a person of color got killed or mugged or anything, you would just see people who looked like me. But today, there's something going on. Today, everybody is here. And it's gotta be an issue regarding not just black lives, but the realization that if black lives are, are down, if black lives are getting killed, if black lives, lives aren't getting what they're due, which is the same of anybody, they realize that if they don't get it, we're next. And it's really something going on here where we got a lot of people who look like the rainbow. And that's positive. So could you talk uh, more about your plans to do this every day then, is my understanding. Um, could you talk about that and what, what your future plans are? Our plan really is to show out here, to show the community that we want to be a part of the solution. Whether we do it here, whether we do it in one of our other affiliates, you know, we're here in Washington, D.C., but we're all across North America. We may do pop-ups across, across the country just to show that we want to be a part of the solution. We can't just sit back. Can't sit back and just wait for something to happen. Now is the time for us to get together with our membership, to get together with organized labor, to get together with communities and make something happen. We're in a great space right now. And so speaking to this, since we are currently standing uh, at Black Lives Matter Plaza outside the AFL-CIO building now, and we're all wearing masks on in the time of a pandemic, could you speak to the type of effort it takes to organizing um, something like this during a pandemic? It wasn't as difficult as you would think. All we had to do was make a call to our affiliate here in the DC Metro, and because of the makeup of the membership, because we leaned in early on immigration, we leaned in early on Black Lives Matter, those are some of the members that we represent. And all the other members somehow get it. Now, I'm gonna tell you something, we're a union, we want people who do the work that we do, but I would be foolish if I told you every member agrees with what we're doing. But that's no different than any other organization. And we're aware, and it takes leadership to say, hey, enough's enough. 
this is what we're going to do? Do I say like it or lump it? Or do I say, hey, this is about the community. This is about the vision of the United States of America, where everybody is entitled to an opportunity. I wonder if you can also talk about uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton has called for a march on Washington for Friday, August 28th at the uh, memorial service for George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. I'm wondering, are you thinking about endorsing this march? I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I wonder if you could talk about your thoughts about that and then also, you know, how that it's in commemoration of the original 1963 march. Well, and my family, I remember growing up as a kid and my grandmother, my grandmother and my grandfather. We'd go to visit with them. There were some pictures that they had on the wall. One was Jesus. On the left was Jack Kennedy. On the right was Martin Luther King Jr. I remember that. And I think about what my grandparents went through, what my parents went through, what their grandparents went through. Talking about over 200 years. 200 years of being in bondage. Even after 200 years of bondage, still in bondage because there's no equality. Is it just because people don't understand or people didn't understand and didn't get the vision of those simple words now? What do they call them now? Um, microaggressions. And there's another term, microaggressions and extra judicial, which is another term for above the law, where someone can go out and do something to someone without a trial, without a hearing, and decide whether you're a policeman or a person from the community to shoot somebody to choke somebody, to kill somebody because of microaggressions or extra legal. It's still murder. It's still killing without recourse. And that's what I believe this country today and these people that are getting together are saying enough is enough. Uh, we were talking earlier about your experience as a student at uh, San Jose State. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about that incident and, and talk to talk to us about uh, what it means, what it meant to you growing up. Well, growing up as a kid in San Jose, California, which, believe me, I was fortunate to have both my mother and my father in my life. My brother, I've got two brothers and a sister. We had what we felt was a great, great life. Started in East Palo Alto, California, moved to San Jose, 
And growing up, elementary school, high school, we get into college. And this notion of it can happen to anyone who looks like me. People didn't seem to understand the notion of the talk. I didn't understand it when, when my father told me about it. I didn't, you know, well, yeah, 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 we're going to do what we're supposed to do if we get pulled over until we got pulled over. In California, that great bastion of liberalism. My brother and I, we were both in college and we were going to a, a mixer, a party. It's Friday night, nothing else to do. About 10 o'clock, because you know, nothing starts till around 10 o'clock. And we get pulled over. So we pulled over. And we said, well, I, hey, Paul, were you speeding? What's up? He says, I don't, not doing the limit. I turn and look, and there's a policeman with a cannon pointed at my brother. He says, will you get out of the car, please? I turn and look to, to my right, because I was a passenger, and then there's a policeman with the shotgun. Will you get out of the car, please? So we got out. Now, remember, this was like 10 o'clock in the evening. Get out of the car, sit down on the sidewalk while they're rifling through my brother's car. It's a little Volvo, Volkswagen. Opens up the front, looks through, looks in the back seat, shuffles through. He says, okay, you guys can go. We said, well, officer, what, 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 why did you pull us over? What? 10 o'clock in the evening, there was a robbery at a liquor store at 8 o'clock this morning, and you guys fit the description. It was two colors. It was like 1980-something. Still calling us colors. And San Jose, that great bastion of liberalism. So that told me something, that if it happens here, it happens anywhere, and that's what people need to know. And it always had been something for me, a little bit difficult to talk about, because I'm like, hey, this is personal, this is private, it's somewhat of an issue. But yeah, that's a life experience, one of several. So was there anything you'd like to add for the interview that you may have missed? For me, I just really want to emphasize that the IUPAT alone, the union that I represent alone, can't do it by ourselves. It has to be all of us deciding that this is what we're going to do as a people. We are the people, and we need to realize that. And that's really all I got to say. Do you have any suggestions for how anyone can get involved, for how to generate, you know, broader solidarity among unions locally, nationally? Broader, broader solidarity starts with communication. It starts with attending your meetings. It starts with me as relates to the building trades and to the AFL-CIO. Those are two groups that I'm very much engaged with, is to have those kind of conversations and see. It never seems like it's fast enough. And sometimes we let our own self-interest because we all, each organization has their own kind of like self-interest. But if we realize that as labor, that's the one thing that we all have in common. 
organized labor. And none of us can say we got a lock on the markets that we work in. And if we want to be stronger, we've got to have more members and more people that do what we do and more people that understand how important it is to be represented. I understand you're doing a lot of work building apprenticeship programs for the young people, bringing them into the union. I wonder if you can talk about that, particularly in relation to maybe some of the youth that have been down here protesting. Well, yeah. So it's funny you say that because here in the D.C. metro, I have a business manager here in D.C. who has been a trainer before he became the business manager. And young Cordian, as a trainer, was able to get several grants from the government to be able to do just that, to train youngsters who maybe don't have an opportunity or don't realize that not everybody has to be a computer engineer. And that if you learn a trade and get a skill, you can make a great living, especially if you're in organized labor. This has been another segment of Cool Things in the Media Archives. I'm the archive specialist, Alan Weirdak, here with the labor archivist, Ben Blake. Thank you to Kenneth Rick Maiden for taking the time out uh, to speak with us. Stay strong, everyone. Stay safe. Keep fighting. Um, until next time. This week, the Congressional Black Caucus presented the Justice in Policing Act on Capitol Hill in a press conference led by party leaders Nancy Pelosi, Cory Booker, and Kamala Harris. Were this bill to pass into law, it would represent a historically ambitious reform effort directed at reining in the excesses of police officers in towns and cities across the United States. Yet for many protesters, it does not go nearly far enough. They call for deeper systemic change. In previous generations, black communities repeatedly called for more black police officers, confident that they would share a greater kinship with the neighborhoods in which they were operating. However, proposals of this nature have fallen by the wayside. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon spoke to W. Marvin Delaney, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Texas, Arlington, and the author of Black Police in America. Well, thank you for joining me on Labor History Today. Now, you wrote an important book in 1996 called Black Police in America, and I'm really interested in getting your take on the challenges of the present but I was hoping first we could explore some of that history, as I think that's one that many are unfamiliar with. Can sure. you tell us, when do African-American men first start calling for access police jobs, and how does that come about? Well, um, let's say the sort of a false start that started in New Orleans in oh, 1804, 1805, 1806, where uh, free African-Americans were... Um, employed to police the slave population. And of course, these free African-Americans were mixed race African-Americans in the sense of they were quadroons and octoroons and mulattoes, and therefore saw a distinction between themselves and the darker-skinned African-Americans who were usually still enslaved. And so they indeed were hired then to police the slave population. And then even later, many of them would join a militia organization in New Orleans to put down a major slave rebellion that took place in 1811 in New Orleans. But the actual quest for African Americans to become law enforcement officers started in 1804 
hired all across the South in places like Richmond, Charleston, South Carolina, um, Charlotte, North Carolina, and so on. Uh, because indeed, African-Americans thought that the only way, even then, that they were going to get fair and authoritative law enforcement, fair and equal, equal law enforcement, was by having a, a, other African-Americans on the, on the police force. This uh, movement, of course, sort of ends in the South by the turn of the 20th century. But while while the actual participation of African-Americans in law enforcement in the South ends, um, as I said, at the turn of the 20th century, it begins in the North, in places like Chicago and Philadelphia, uh, St. Louis, in, let's say, 1872, Chicago, 1881 uh, in Philadelphia, uh, 1900 in St. Louis, where African-Americans want to use their political power, once again, to to become members of the police force so that they would be represented in law enforcement and, once again, police their communities, protect their communities from police brutality, as you know, that's as, as we know, still going on. Uh, they're, they are never, ever able to get as many African-Americans of the police force because police jobs are usually sort of reserved for white men. And white men take those jobs, particularly immigrants, like the Irish, the Italians and so on, and they use those jobs uh, for sort of social social advancement in American society. Uh, and of course, they also take on the the idea that from from which the police actually originated. That is, the police in, in the South, in particular, were organized to police African Americans. So, in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century, that becomes almost a primary role of. Um, police officers in the North to police African-Americans, not to protect them, but to police them and to, and to keep them in their place. And I'll end that answer there. And you write that in cities like Atlanta, it takes decades just to crack open the door. And even then, African-American police are often referred to as race officers. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, as I said, they hire them first in the South during Reconstruction, but in 1865 and 1877. Atlanta was one of the places, one of the cities that failed to hire them. So they actually started a campaign in the 1920s to get African-Americans on the Atlanta police force. And this sort of goes along or coalesces with what's happening all across the South. And, uh, once again, it's Richmond, Charleston, Dallas, Houston, where they're trying to get African-Americans on the police force. But they, they indeed do begin to hire them, especially after the Smith versus Allwright case, which gives African-American access uh, to the Democratic Party's white primary. And they hired them, though, with, with some caveats. They cannot arrest whites. They can only arrest uh, work in African-American neighborhoods. And they're not eligible for promotion. And indeed, the African-American citizens who pushed for the hiring of Afri African-American police officers called them race officers because basically they see them as representatives of the race, so that is the African-American race, who are serving in, in government. And, and that's very, uh, a very prestigious thing for the community, as well as for the men who served. Then by the 1960s, the number of African-American police officers has increased, and you've described how many saw themselves in some way almost as a wing of the civil rights movement, even as they were at times being asked to police civil rights demonstrations. Yes. Uh, what, what, what occurs 
I mean, some of the most first offices hired in the 40s and 50s, um, you know, were basically powerless and sort of like token police officers and didn't have the authority or the prestige that white officers uh, had. Uh, again, primarily because, uh, as I said before, they couldn't arrest whites. They only worked in African-American communities and they usually did not get promotions. But in the 60s, with the advent of the civil rights movement, well, let's say the quickened pace of the civil rights movement, because the civil rights movement had been going on for a while, um, they come to see themselves as representatives of the community, uh, that is representatives to, to protect the community from o- overzealous white police officers who are indeed enforcing segregation, who are indeed brutalizing demonstrators, and, and, and literally trying to use the whole power of the state to keep segregation in place and to keep African-Americans in this place. African-American officers form police associations like the Afro-American Police League uh, in Chicago, the Officers for Justice in San Francisco, uh, because as you sort of noted, they see themselves as members of the community and indeed that the people out, out in the streets demonstrating are demonstrating for some of the rights that they feel that they should have as, as police officers. They, again, are sort of like token members of the police department and see white officers given these, these special privileges, privileges that they don't have because literally their, their status in American society is concurrent with the status of African-American citizens in American society. That is, they're second-class police officers just as African-Americans were second-class citizens of the United States. So at that time, are African-American police officers popular figures in African-American communities? They become uh, popular figures in the African-American community. Again, I'm, and I probably need to distinguish between the South, that is, those officers who were southern, self-serving in southern citizen cities versus those officers who were serving in northern cities. As I said, there's a major push in the South in the 40s and 50s to get African-American police jobs, mainly because Southern police officers just had been off the chain in terms of the brutality and their racism. So Southern African communities, Southern African-American communities, mainly led by, let's say, middle-class African-Americans, the the teachers, the lawyers, the doctors, Hmm. uh, ministers, uh, led the, the campaigns to get blacks on the forces. So indeed, they saw those officers as, uh, as representing the community and held them in high esteem. Even though in some cases, uh, but this is primarily in the North, in some cases those officers were just as brutal and perhaps even more brutal toward African-American citizens than the, the white officers. And this was sort of particularly the case in Northern cities where Northern, in northern cities, many of the African-American officers adopted sort of the viewpoint of white officers, that blacks were natural-born criminals, that they needed to be kept down and contained and controlled, and so they indeed were just as brutal and and not really held in that high esteem, that, that, uh, as, as, in, in high esteem as much as... Um, say, the black officers in the, in the South. And part of the, so uh, we see a transition, though, as I say, going into the 60s, there's this transition where the officers in northern cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, begin to see themselves as arms of the community, as representatives of the community. 
of keeping the blacks down just as the whites um, police officers had done. In the 60s and 70s, we also start to see some of the first black mayors in big cities, Carl Stokes, Maynard Jackson, Coleman Young, Marion Barry. How significant are these political breakthroughs in in both diversifying urban police forces and in elevating black officers into leadership positions? So that's uh, very, very significant because in many cases, these black mayors, uh, Carl Stokes, Maynard Jackson in Atlanta, uh, Kim Gibson in Newark, uh, saw them, saw that their elections or believed that they were elected to uh, control the police departments because the police, the police departments in most cities were just out of, con- out of control in terms of what they did in the African-American community. So it's very significant that that when they got the jobs or when they were elected, one of the first things they tried to do was reform the police departments in Atlanta, Cleveland, Newark, Detroit. Uh, Carl Stokes is probably sort of the emblematic and symbolic case. He uh, went through four police chiefs and commissioners trying to find a, a, a leader who would control the police, uh, stop the police from you know being these violent forces and brutal uh, representatives in the African-American communities. Uh, he basically gave up after he uh, had hired an African-American as, uh, as, as the police commissioner in, uh, in Cleveland, and then he lasted less than six months because he basically had began to or did identify with the white police union and with the sort of the policies perpetrated by white officers uh, before him. Um, in Atlanta, uh, the Mayor Jackson hired a friend of his, a Reginald Eve, the guy who had went to school with him as the police com- superintendent, police commissioner, and they actually had some success. Um, commissioner Eve was able to increase the number and percentage of African-Americans on the Atlanta police force, and he pulled back some of those tactical tactical units that had been that had perpetrated a lot of violent crime against African-American citizens. But, of course, he was highly criticized by the Atlanta business community for, of course, interfering with the police. But, as I said, ultimately, he was very successful in changing the composition of the Atlanta Police Department, as well as improving the image of the police department in the African-American community. And, of course, I could go on and tell you about three more stories, but I'll stop there. So I read to the end of your book, and that's in the mid-90s, and one's left with the impression of a general upward trajectory that black officers have faced at times staggering odds, but they've slowly managed to make American police departments more equitable, both as places for officers to work and in the ways in which they interacted with their communities. And yet here we are a quarter century later, and on the one hand we have many cities with majority-minority forces. We have Mm -hmm. what are seen in many cases as quite forward-thinking African-American police chiefs like David Brown in Chicago, Renee Hall in Dallas, even Madari Arredondo in in Minneapolis, and yet we're in crisis. Yeah. Well, what has happened, and I'll be frank with you, I'm I'm one, I haven't watched this 
mural or that represented uh, how police operated before African-American mayors and before African-Americans became police chiefs and police commissioners. And of course, uh, searching for an answer, I found that one of the things that uh, has occurred is that police unions have literally taken control of the police away from the mayors and the police commissioners themselves. Uh, you know, the New York City Police uh, police, uh, police Union uh, literally has more control over the police department than the, than the mayor and the police commissioner. Uh, in fact, we have literally the same thing here in Dallas, uh, the same thing in, in Cleveland, where police unions, where white officers who control the police unions in most cases, have basically said to these mayors and police commissioners, you know, we run the police. Uh, you, there are certain things we want. We, we indeed want to want qualified immunity. We indeed uh, want the name, office, names of officers held when they um, commit brutal acts. And they literally defend every officer, regardless of the the, the crime or the, the viciousness of, uh, of their actions on the street. I, you know, I, I take the case of Tamir Rice, which is probably one of the most upsetting ones uh, for me, when the officer shot Tamir Rice because he was holding a toy gun, jumps out of the officer jumps out of the car, mm-hmm. shoots him immediately. No, no questions asked. You know, like the old Western uh, idea of shoot first and ask questions later. Well, uh, I was shocked when I found out that Cleveland had an African American police chief, and he literally couldn't do anything. Uh, it took, I guess, almost a year or so before they were able to remove that officer from the from the police force because they had to go through all of those procedures and processes that the police union in Cleveland had set up to protect officers who committed violent acts and brutal acts against the citizens of, of Cleveland. So when I saw the black uh, police chief, it was like, almost like he was this powerless individual uh, who almost couldn't do anything to stem the tide of what the police unions and the police union in Cleveland was promoting and supporting. So, again, my answer then to your question is that the police unions have just gotten out of out of control, and they've been able to enact policies such as again qualified immunity to keep officers on the force who need to be fired. The see in the last few days, there seems to be something of a generational difference in how to approach this. You have the congressional Democrats on the one hand trying to get out ahead with an ambitious, or some would say not ambitious enough, but with an agenda of police reform, and they would like to, as they would see it, I think, try and empower these open-minded, forward-looking police chiefs, and yet you have younger people who are saying it doesn't it doesn't matter how many black officers you hire or how many black op- black police chiefs you hire it doesn't work we've seen it all before yes. none of it works how, how do you make sense of this i, I agree with the young people uh, and i'm and i'm really pleased and I'm surprised pleased and happy that these young people have taken that uh, position that it doesn't matter who what the color of the officers are uh, because you know, as I said, haven't studied this over time and looked at the fact that for 100 years, for 100 plus years, the police have been out of control. Uh, again, I started my work 50 years ago. And here we are in 2020, uh, again, still dealing with the same problem of police violence, 
doing, and I agree with him that you know the, these, the people in, in Congress, um, these mayors, they really don't get it that the police are designed to enforce white supremacy, and, and so they're almost it's almost like they're, they're sanctioned to do some of the things that they do because they feel that then nothing's going to happen. That we'll get us some protests in the streets for a while. Then we'll just revert back to the way things have always been. So I agree with what the young people are doing that we need we to defund and even abolish police police departments because they literally do not do the job that they're not supposed to do, that we expect them to do. They do what they're supposed to do. That is enforce white supremacy. You know, uh, this whole issue of um, mass incarceration this has been caused by the police. Uh, by the, the police targeting African, young African-American and young Mexican-American men, putting them in jail, when the reality is 70% of the drug users are, are young white men, yet 70% of the people who are arrested for possession and user, using are African-American and, and Mexican-American. So that tells you right there that the police are still enforcing white supremacy because they are the ones who have created this carceral state of mass incarceration of young black and brown men. Can I just ask you one more question then? Because you've interviewed a lot of police officers over the years, I understand. I'd imagine that many African-Americans who join the police force do so for admirable reasons to protect their community and, and so on. Are they just eaten by the system then? How do you explain it? Yes, they are basically eaten up and uh, consumed by the system. I did a presentation two years ago uh, in New York City with uh, members of the Guardians uh, Police Association. And, you know, I sort of presented some of the research that I had done and um, how when I first did the research in the 70s and 80s, there was all these police officers who were taking a stand uh, who indeed then were facing firing and harassment from the department as well as other white officers. And I, and I asked what had happened to that spirit of the, of the members of the, the Guardians and the Afro-American Patrolmen's League and so on. And my, the response I got was that, hey, if we take, take these type of positions, even as a police association, that's um, the Guardians, they, were t they told me, we lose our job. And we, we would be harassed to, to such an extent that we would actually be forced off the department. So many of, many of them were just saying, we go along to get along. Can you believe that? That's, yeah. that's depressing. Yeah. Yeah, so I was depressed after that session with the, the members of the Guardian. As I said, given the sort of the revolutionary and progressive stand that they had taken since 1949, uh, they hear these officers in 2015 literally say, hey, you know, we, there's nothing we can do. We, we'll lose our jobs. And 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 there's no one we would, way we would be able to stay on the force if we took stands against police brutality and we reported on other members when we saw doing things that were wrong. I do appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Sure. No problem. Glad to do it. Today, we're also going to bring you a recent interview from our friends Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English in their podcast, Tales from the Ruther Archive, recorded at Wayne State University. In this episode, Dan and Troy spoke with archivist Megan Courtney about the Kerner Commission Report, 
Also known as the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, the report was requested by President Lyndon Johnson in the wake of the 1967 Detroit riots. Johnson challenged the commission to explain what happened, why it happened, and how a repeat could be prevented. Yet what emerged from this committee confounded many expectations. Not a sweeping condemnation of rioters, but a much deeper explanation of the inequalities faced by African Americans in the cities of the 1960s that sounds all too familiar to us today. Here's Dan. Okay, yeah. Today's podcast, we will be talking with Megan Courtney, our outreach archivist, about a blog post she did on our website about the Kerner Report. Now, if some of you don't know what that was, it was a report from a commission established by President Johnson in 1967, right after the Detroit Rebellion, to look at why various cities in the U.S. exploded in rebellion by black Americans. He wanted to know what happened, why it happened, and what could be done to prevent it from happening again. This report, when it came out, became a number one bookseller, and it, was, and it shocked many. When it concluded that the blame for the rebellions, or riots, as they said in the 1960s, was based solely on white racism and the disadvantage that it caused to the black populations in the entire United States. It is one of the most insightful government publications on race relations in the 20th century, and it was ignored completely. Many of the highlighted problems that the report stated remain relevant today. Lack of jobs, inadequate education, racial discrimination, and police brutality remain an endemic, and the war on crime and drugs has replaced any semblance of any urban policy. Tragically, the same issues that identified in the Kerner Report, police violence, and inescapable poverty are root causes of the rebellions we see today in 2020. So join us as we talk to Megan about how the power of the past can help with the future of our society. Hi, Megan. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Listen, we're going to talk about some um, interesting things today for the folks. So why don't you take us back to... 1967 and the formation of the Kerner Commission. I mean, why was it created in the first place? And was it really that hectic in 67? Yeah, so... In 1967 is when they formed the, when President Johnson formed the Kerner Commission, and it really was kind of in response to a flurry of activity in America's cities. At the time, they used the kind of terminology of riot. So in all of our documentation, you'll see that that's the term the government is using. But now a lot of people really see them more as urban rebellions, where Black communities are kind of rising up and saying, we've had enough of inequality, of police brutality, et cetera. And, you know, part of it was because of what happened in Detroit in in, in July um, of 1967, that things had been pretty violent. A lot of people lost their lives. There was also the same year, a similar kind of event in Newark. And across the country, these things had been happening in 65 in Watts and, and previous to that as well. And at that moment, under the Johnson administration, they said, we got to figure out why this is happening and how we can prevent this in the future. Because, of course, people were very disturbed by the loss of life and, and damage to property at the time as well. 
No, no. We, we know things were, Detroit was considered kind of like a model city in a way with the race relations. African-Americans were getting jobs. There was housing, et cetera, et cetera. What exactly was, was being hidden by the local government or the news agencies to all of a sudden have this rebellion in 67? There are really some kind of interesting parallels uh, between now and then. Even in the late 60s, there was a lot of conversation about Detroit as kind of a city that was, you know, coming back, really coming into itself. What we see happening is that, you know, in the first, like during World War II, in the 50s, you see this economic growth. There are a lot of jobs that are relatively easy to get that are becoming available. But at that point, people start to move out of the city and there's some contraction economically that's happening there as the late 60s come around. And people are engaged with these ideas. The Model City program is something that Detroit was a part of. And the idea was this kind of promise of a city that was um, designed with people in mind, that was for the the future, that had a community mindset. But that kind of left behind all the real economic and racial disparities that were happening in the city. Detroit was a like many cities, most cities in the United States, a place that had racially restrictive housing covenants for a long time. So black people in Detroit were mostly only able to live in certain parts of town. And some of those parts of town we see well before 67 are getting um, removed in the name of urban renewal. And so people are kind of getting smushed into neighborhoods that aren't ready for that amount of people that don't have the correct amount of services. And so the idea that Detroit is a model city with a lot of opportunity for African-Americans is in some ways true, but it's also in other ways deeply lacking. So one of the things that I think a lot of people talked about 50 years after 1967 was this idea that people had raised their expectations, that they believed in these stories about the model city. They believed in these stories about how Americans were meant to live in an urban environment, that they that they could have a human-based community, but it actually hadn't been delivered. And the model cities program wasn't really living up to that in the short term. So that's essentially why, you know, we, we had rebellions in 67. And there was a lot around the country at that time. Not, not, not huge like uh, Detroit, Newark, but small areas too. Uh-huh. And so, so yeah, right. Well, Johnson wanted to know why, how it happened and what we could do to prevent it, which was interesting to have a commission put together right in the middle of some horrendous things going on. Now, who was on this commission? And I mean, what was, what was the conclusion of the Kerner uh, report? So just a few weeks after what happened in Detroit, the commission was formed and it was 11 people um, that were on the commission. And a lot of people describe this group as a relatively moderate group, particularly for the time period. In the late 60s, there are plenty of more radical voices on the scene, but these were relatively moderate people. The commission was named for Otto Kerner, who was the governor of Illinois. And then there were, I think, four other elected officials you have the the head of the NAACP at the time, steelworkers leadership. So they try to do really a cross-section of political leaders. There's a business representative on their community organizations in the form of NAACP. But it, it wasn't they did they did do you know bipartisan selection of commissioners, but there was an expectation that it wasn't it was a mostly, you know, sort of moderate voice that was happening. And in some ways people kind of felt like Johnson was surprised by the outcome. The commission report came out in 1968, and they actually, they published the summary. This is one thing I like to show to students. They published the summary in very small print in the New York Times. And so we get out this document, and young people 
who are very familiar with what's happening today in activism haven't heard of the Kerner Commission report. So they kind of get this chance to see what the summary is and what a lot of the things that they identify as causes for what they're calling riots at the time are some things we see today. Employment, education, social welfare, and housing are the main kind of causes of, of, of these boiling points that they're seeing. And honestly, you know, some of the suggestions that the Kerner Commission makes are are very vague, you know, things like increase opportunity, but some are pretty specific. They're very specifically calling for, you know, 2 million jobs to be created, half in the private sector, half in the public sector, and, and kind of laying out how this can happen and asking for some things that we see people still talking about today, like you know, eliminating arrest records as a condition for employment, things like that. So it was, I think, a little bit of a surprise to your sort of mainstream white Americans because the headline of this report is institutional racism is the problem. Megan, of course, I didn't read the whole report preparing for our podcast, but I read the summary and what other historians have said about it. But I'm trying to wrap my head around is, is did they try to include any kind of context, do you think? Yeah, so that was one thing that kind of struck me about the Kerner Commission report is that they really did devote quite a bit of text to trying to explain the history of Black Americans and how we got to this point. There's, I think, 20 pages um, that deal with explaining you know, the sort of slavery up to the present. And we've seen very successful tellings of this in a different way with like the 1619 Project and things like that. But just the fact that they've devoted so much space to trying to explain how we got here, I think sort of validates the idea that you really need to understand the past to understand what's happening in the present. So, so could, could, could we say that this is part of this report comes out, becomes a national bestseller, number one, and we have these issues in 67 and 68 is just a, a crazed time with uh, assassinations, student rebellion, Vietnam war is escalating. Could, so what you're alluding to uh, here is this, this could be part of that whole white backlash that developed when Nixon was elected. Do you see that at all? I think that there is a little bit of an element to that. You know, I, the, the Kerner Commission report comes out, the Kerner report, and they offer a lot of suggestions to cities um, and states across the country. And different places take this report differently. There is a portion of the report that talks about the best way to reform policing, for example, so that if there is demonstrating in your city, how do you find a better way than escalating things? But some places took that information as a reason that they should be investing more money in the sort of tools that police can use to suppress organizing and demonstrating. So, you know, some places, some of your more liberal cities are looking at it in one way, some of your other cities are looking at it another way. And at the federal level, it's tough because Johnson didn't really throw his, you know, vociferous support behind the spirit of, of the Kerner Commission report. Even though he formed the committee, he wasn't out there saying, the report is out, let's put these into practice. So a lot of communities do see in the early 70s, um, late 60s, early 70s, a drastic increase. Like you're saying, this kind of Nixon mentality of law and order. We need to, to get a grip on things. We need to um, squash these insurrections. You know, this, this kind of rhetoric is, is floating around. And part of it does come from the sort of white people's fear that these urban rebellions are going to spread into their communities. So this is something that we see today in conversations that are happening surrounding our current moment. And it causes people to say, 
get out the big guns then, which is actually explicitly something that the Kerner Commission did not want to happen. There's a part of it, they, it says that the commission condemns moves to equip police departments with mass destruction weapons. And they kind of list off a couple of, you know, potentially fatal weapons. Talking about anything that's meant to destroy is, is not something that should be used in urban centers uh, where people live. So um, the disconnect is strange. What what kind of takeaways did you take from the report that obviously the biggest thing was the, the quote from our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Mm-hmm. Um, that struck me. But what struck you that 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 the report was talking about that we see is today as well? You know, I think there are a lot of um, things that the commission acknowledges that a lot of people weren't talking about publicly at the time, particularly white people. And so the fact that the commission touches on police brutality and indicates that there has been a history of not only unequal policing, but also police work that that ends in, in police hurting people, killing people, that this is something that is a problem and then feeds into continued problems in urban centers. So yeah, I think that that was shocking to a lot of people who read this for the first time. They, as white people, hadn't experienced this themselves, and so to see it acknowledged by their own government was um, kind of eye-opening. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so you told said earlier that you show the Kerner Commission to students. So what is, set us up. How do you use this in a classroom setting? Well... I think it's a it's a good example in part of how archives work because in our collections and in most people's collections that deal with this kind of topic, it's not as though everything that relates to the Kerner Commission is in the same collection. So because it's spread out into different collections, we've got some stuff in the Jerome Cavanaugh papers. He was the mayor of Detroit at the time. We have some things in the like Wayne State student organizations. It's all spread out from different perspectives. You can see how different audiences are talking about this same thing and how it's represented differently between different groups. The Kavanaugh stuff is cool because you can see some of that prep work. Jerome Kavanaugh was involved in supporting the commission's efforts to gather data because he was the mayor of Detroit. So we have some, you know, things like meeting minutes from some of these meetings where commissioners would meet with community organizing leaders um, in Detroit, and they would offer their perspectives, they would share their experiences. And so you can kind of see the questions that the commissioners are asking and how their reactions go, which is very cool to see, you know, this is the background stuff that created this end set of assumptions for the Kerner Commission. But because we also have things like those reactions in some ways to the Kerner Commission report, it's interesting for students to see how different people take that. It's also true that Obviously, if the Kerner Commission is saying that, for example, unequal access to housing was part of the cause of this, we have a number of collections that reflect that as well. So students can see little pieces of proof of this. You know, they can see, for example, our records that relate to city planning in Detroit and kind of get some practice in reading between the lines of these archival records that, for example, there's a lot of documentation from an administrative perspective, you know, the people who work in the city planning office are going and taking notes, but there is nothing for folders and folders and folders about the people who live in these houses or their reactions or anything like a community meeting. Like just seeing these gaps, these voices that aren't in there is something that I think is very interesting to see. This is how we got to this point and this is what happened after. That's just very true about the, the, our archives is that we've always strived and hoped to be the archive for the voiceless. 
And here's the archival record trying to read between the lines and push that material out. So I, I love that when you're doing that with students, they're reading between the lines. What kind of reactions do you usually get from the students about the discoverable of that 50 years ago plus, 50 years plus, the, the same kind of things are going on today? Yeah, well, you know, it, it doesn't just happen with the Kerner Report, unfortunately. You know, I think that students have that reaction with a lot of our collections because they're seeing people kind of trying to improve their world. And they make some progress, for sure, but not as much as they'd ever hoped. You know, people put out these these hopes and they don't all get achieved in a single lifetime. And I think that there is a mixture of frustration and sometimes confusion <laughs> and sometimes a little bit of hope, you know, for them to say, I guess my beliefs are part of this bigger story. You know, like this didn't come up last week. It didn't come up 10 years ago. This is something that I can be a part of this much larger movement than I realized and maybe find a way to realize some of these previous generations goals. Right. That's usually when people get aware of the history that they're part of is like, they're not making this up today has been created years ago that we must learn from and build on exactly what the history is about. All right. I'm going to ask you a fun question though. All right. But on your archivist lens, okay. Uh Uh Flash little historian. And it's relative to the Kerner report. And, Uh and, and I, I, when I was reading and doing the research for our, for our podcast, it kept popping up in my mind that here is a government publication saying black lives matter in 1968. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what they were trying to say? They didn't use that phrase then, <laughs> you know. No, they I, didn't. No, but reading that like, part is new. Yeah, that's new. Yeah, you know, I think the recommendations are are by and large the same kinds of things that you see a lot of people calling for today, and so I think, in effect, yes, there is there is a, a problematic kind of detachedness sometimes if you're looking at the text, if you're comparing what they've chosen to report with all of the kind of input that they've had from real human beings. But again, it is a government document. So it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that. And that's part of the reason that I think it's really important for people to kind of think about the context of archival documents. And that's why you have to add in those additional voices that are real people giving their testimony to the commission, things like that. Because if you just look at this document and you look at it through today's lens, you're going to miss some things. You know, if you don't, if you expect to hear them say Black Lives Matter because you know that that's a phrase people use today, you may misinterpret the lack of it. It's not that they would necessarily disagree with that, but I don't know what they would think about it, honestly. You know, the, the context of 1967, 1968 is drastically different than the context that we see today. And we've learned some things and we've forgotten some things. Excellent, Megan. Thank you very much for being on our show. You're welcome. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1929. That was the day that police chief Orville Adderhalt was shot and killed at a camp of striking textile workers in Gastonia, North Carolina. The textile mills had fallen on hard times in the late 1920s. During World War I, demand for cloth for uniforms had sent the industry booming. But at the end of the war, orders dried up. Then, to make matters worse, new fashion trends had women wearing shorter skirts, further cutting demand. In response, the mill owners at the Lorry Mill began what was called the stretch out. They laid off numerous workers and demanded that those who remained worked faster without raising wages or, in many cases, cutting workers' pay. The National Textile Workers Union recognized that these conditions made it an ideal time to begin organizing in the South. The Lorry Mill was the largest in the state. On April 1st, 1,800 workers went out on strike. The company responded by evicting strikers from company housing and hiring deputies to harass picketers. As tensions escalated, police chief Adderhalt, along with some of his officers and company hired guns, went to a worker's camp. When Adderhalt was shot and killed by an unknown person, the police arrested dozens of strikers. Sixteen eventually stood trial, but no one was convicted. Then, in September, Ella Mae Wiggins, a popular speaker who wrote songs for the strikers, was shot and killed at a worker's rally. The union lost its fight, and North Carolina remains one of the lowest unionized workforces in the nation. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Our song this week is Heaven Help Us All, written by Joe DiFilippo and performed by the R.J. Phillips Band, a group of Baltimore musicians we featured on the show before. Joe says this song was recorded three years ago for the families who have lost loved ones as a result of police brutality. This week, Joe told me, some things don't change. in blue As his family cries out They ask What did he do? Did he take a bullet Because of his hue? Heaven help us all Judge ruled the killing justified. Though someone pulled the trigger, there was no homicide. For the victim's family, justice was denied. Heaven help us all.
says A mother sits alone She looks at her son's photograph But he ain't coming home Says her prayers But in her heart She never will come home Heaven help us all That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. You can be part of Labor History Today by reading a Labor History item. Just shoot us a note, laborhistorytoday at gmail.com. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Patrick Dixon produced and edited the W. Marvin Delaney interview. Alan Weirdak produces Cool Things from the Mini Archives. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Chloe Daniel, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Jessica Pozek, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time.